0: Alright, here we go. Welcome to episode 5. This will also be part 1 of a 3, maybe 4 part series looking at the New England Clean Energy Connect project. But a couple of quick things before getting into it. I ended up doing a short write-up on Susan Collins' election results, talking about those military ballots, and also pulled data from her last election and did a comparison with those. So if that sounds interesting, you can go read that at the mainpolis.com. Right now, I have it sticky toward the top. Also, you can find the main polls on a couple of different social media platforms now. Uh, Facebook, which we'll see how that goes. And I've also set something up on Gab, so you can connect there too. And finally, it looks like there was an election miscount in Hudson. Something about overlooked absentee ballots. I've got a link to the Secretary of State's press release up on the website if you want to see the specifics on that. My guess is that it won't change much of what I've laid out in previous podcasts, but I'll be updating the spreadsheets when the numbers are released. And honestly, it really makes me want to start digging into the absentee ballot numbers even more, and the new voter registration numbers that were released. But that'll be for another day, because today, we'll be stepping away from the election and taking a hard look at the New England Clean Energy Connect project. And if you're not aware of what the New England Clean Energy Connect project is, it is a proposal by Central Maine Power and Hydro-Quebec to bring hydroelectricity into southern New England, Massachusetts specifically. They want to construct a 145 mile corridor from Beattie Township in western Maine all the way down to Lewiston. The bulk of the corridor from Moxigore to Lewiston is along existing corridors that will just need to be significantly widened to handle the new lines. But the first 53 miles of the corridor from Beattie Township to Moxie Gore, they'll need to cut a brand new corridor for that part, which has drawn the ire of many. And so, if you have been following any of this, you'll know that even though this project is being pushed as a way to bring clean energy into our grid and lower the region's carbon footprint, there are a number of organizations, communities, and local politicians that are not convinced this project will do any of that and are working to stop it entirely. So, where I really wanted to start was by exploring what is happening in Massachusetts that is making CNP and Hydro Quebec want to pursue this project. But before we can do that, we need to zoom out a little further. We need to get a handle on how the energy market works in New England, and how a project proposal like the NECEC gets legs in the first place. And to do that, we have to take a good hard look at what's meant by the grid. What do people mean when they say the grid? And how do companies like CMP or those mountain Ridge wind farms operate within it? So the first thought might be, well, it's all the wires and stuff that crisscross the region, and I guess it's all tied together in some way. in some way. That in some way is called ISO New England. It's an actual organization headquartered down in Holyoke Mass. It's staffed 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and what they do can be divided into at least three different categories. The first thing ISO in New England deals with is operating the grid. What exactly does that mean? Well, picture a great big control room, about 4,000 square feet, with a giant 10 by 60 foot flat screen on the wall showing the entire New England grid in real time. If you've ever looked at it an electronic schematic, it sort of looks like that, except rather than transistors and diodes, there's transformers and high voltage corridors, and the power source isn't a wall outlet or a couple of batteries its wind turbines, and nuclear power plants. Facing the screen are a team of ISO folks, each sitting in front of their own seven or eight monitors, and these folks are looking at everything that should, could, or would affect the grid within the hour, the day, or the week. They're looking at weather reports, considering the time of year and what people are using, think air conditioners or electric heating, storms to keep folks inside or big sporting events, even what day of the week it is. Are people at home, or are they at work? Are they working from home? What time of day is it? Are they sleeping, just waking up? All of this is taken into account in real time and used to predict how much the grid will need. They're constantly adjusting these short-term predictions based on what they're seeing in the live data on the screen. For example, a lightning storm rips across the White Mountains, knocks down a dozen trees on the line, took out a transformer station, and shut down a couple of towns. The folks at ISO, after seeing the storm warnings forecasted for the White Mountains, would have been taking preemptive measures in case something did happen to affect grid stability. Then, if something does happen, they will see that on the screen and be able to spawn in real time. Now, what does that mean? It might mean shifting or shutting down the electrical current to that area, protecting the rest of the grid from problems. If the storm put a wind turbine or a natural gas generator offline, they'll need to get other power sources in the grid to step it up to make up the difference. Or maybe there isn't even a storm. A big natural gas burner breaks down outside Boston. They'll need to call up maybe more than one power source to make up the difference. Now, in order for the ISO to do that, they get contracts with some of these generating facilities. Because they're technically private companies, they get contracts with some of these companies to basically have so much generating capacity on standby, They've got a few categories for this. The first two are those that can get it up within 10 minutes and those that can do it in 30 minutes. And then there's a third category that can get the grid going immediately following a blackout. But even with all of that, if something happens to make our demand outpace what can be generated, it might mean contacting a neighboring grid to shore up what New England can't generate for itself. And that works the other way too. If something happened to the New York grid, They could call on ISO New England to help make up the difference. This also means that all those things I named, weather reports, time of year, what people are doing, yeah, they're taking all those things into account, not just for New England, but neighboring grids as well. So there's no surprises if they get a call or have to make a call. Even planned outages, CMP can't just start doing line repair or shut down a substation for maintenance. ISO New England needs to know about it. And they'll tell CMP when they can start work. All of this to keep the grid stable. What does that mean? Well, without getting too technical, our grid runs off 60 hertz. Not all grids do. The ones in Europe use a different frequency for example, but that just happens to be the frequency that they went with. Which means that the grid has to keep that frequency. So sometimes, that means getting generators to turn up the juice but they might just as well get a call telling them to cut back if the system starts going over 60 hertz. It's like trying to keep a scale calibrated while millions of people are constantly adding and moving things off the scale. The second thing ISO New England is responsible for is designing, running, and overseeing the wholesale electricity market in New England. What exactly is the wholesale electricity market, and why is ISO New England in charge of it? Well, prior to the 1990s, energy companies were allowed to be vertically integrated, which basically just means that the company generating the electricity was the same company as the one distributing the electricity. What we ended up with were regional energy monopolies. And by the 1990s, states had had enough and forced companies to decide distributed energy or generate energy. But you can't do both. And so, out of this, two very distinct markets were created. The retail market, where distributors sell to homes and businesses, and then there's the wholesale market, where energy generators sell electricity wholesale to local distributors like CMP, who can then sell it to their retail customers. And so, the job of coming up with the rules that govern this new wholesale market fell to ISO New England. And I say market. But actually, in order to achieve the level of grid stability necessary, a number of different markets are required. The first type of market is pretty obvious, and the ISO doesn't get too involved in these ones, but you know, you've got a distributor like CMP and a generator like one of those wind farms along the bridge coming together independently and working out a bilateral agreement, just like any other supply and demand transaction. But that corner of the wholesale market isn't enough to keep the entire New England grid up and running, let alone stable. So, in addition to being able to just work out a price with each other, they also have the choice of purchasing and selling through the ISO's energy market. And their energy market is really made up of two, I guess I'll call them sub-markets. The first one is a real-time energy market, which allows wholesale purchasers like CMP to purchase generated energy in real-time to meet real-time demand. This price fluctuates throughout the day based on any number of variables, and so to add a little more stability, they also created the day-ahead energy market, which allows distributors to lock in prices with generators a day in advance based on the retail market's predicted energy demands for the following day. And ISO New England are the ones setting and adjusting the prices. They use all that data collection and analysis I spoke of earlier, and one of the big things they do is use it to manipulate the value of wholesale electricity. They also build something called the capacity market. In order for the ISO to have predictable long-term stability, they put out bids to generators, offering them compensation, and they can show they'll still be up and running for the next three years. I'm not sure how you'd prove that exactly. My guess is the bid involves showing some financial records, maybe some maintenance schedules, how much generating capacity do they have, is it considered renewable, or does it release carbon? Those sorts of things are what I'm picturing. And that's how the ISO's capacity market works. Okay, so the capacity market, that's for long-term stability. The ISO also has something they call ancillary services to meet the grid's short-term demands. And this fluctuates, regularly and sometimes without warning. And so they've developed a few different strategies that fall under ancillary service to guarantee enough market participants selling electricity to meet the grid's fluctuating demands. And there's four of them. The regulation market. This is one I touched on before. They have a list of generators that are basically on retainer to help keep the grid at 60 Hertz. They have another called voltage support, which is the same idea, except instead of Hertz stability, the list helps guarantee voltage stability the forward reserve market is another one i mentioned without naming earlier these contracts go to energy generators with reserve generating capacity that can get up and running in either 10 or 30 minutes they also have real-time reserve pricing these are generators that with a phone call can either increase or decrease their energy output depending on what the wholesale market needs for grid stability the final thing they got under ancillary services is black start capability. This is like their worst case scenario market. This pays certain energy producers at key locations for their ability to get things up and running again after a blackout. So I'm guessing the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire is probably on that list and if I'm understanding it correctly, I assume what happens is that they're compensated for having that ability and... Then they'll be compensated for the electricity produced when they get that call from the ISO. Okay, so let's recap. ISO New England does three things. They operate the entire grid from a control center down in Holyoke, Mass. That's number one. Number two, they regulate New England's wholesale energy market in a way to ensure long and short-term stability. Alright, so the third thing ISO deals with is that they are responsible for managing the planning process, for New England's power system. And they do this in a few different ways, but basically they're looking at least a decade out and trying to predict what the grid's going to need, where they'll need it, and when they'll need it before it starts causing a problem for grid stability. So let's work out some examples. Obviously they're looking at past and present electrical demands on the grid and making some basic predictions based on the current generating capacity available. But they'd also have to make predictions about population growth centers, and which ones will need distribution upgrades or additional generating capacity nearby. Maybe a hospital is planning a new wing with some load-heavy medical equipment, and it's going to double their electrical demand. Or maybe there's serious talk of a brand new event center on the outskirts of town, or some massive mixed-use development capable of housing a couple thousand people. They're following legislative policy demands within each individual state, especially rules on renewable energy, They're tracking and mitigating generating vulnerabilities by closely watching the maintenance and repair schedules for generating facilities when they're being retired or retrofitted and construction timelines for new facilities planned or coming online soon. And not just generating vulnerabilities, they're also assessing and predicting transmission vulnerabilities. As new generators are planned and builds or old ones retrofitted, where will transmission bottlenecks develop? Is the local infrastructure powerful enough to handle the output of a new wind farm and then safely and efficiently transport it into the larger grid? Are the corridors big enough? What about, say, intergrid connections with New York, Quebec, and New Brunswick? Are the ones we have already enough? Or will they need expansion? Maybe additional intergrid connections are needed, say, between Quebec and, I don't know, Western Maine. And so, every two years, they take all this information and release the regional system plan, and because of how fluid all these variables are, it's regularly updated between the release dates, but it gives these generators and distribution companies something they can base a cost-benefit analysis on. For example, a gas power generating facility wants to expand, but aren't sure what will make more sense, building a sister facility in a more rural but growing part of the state or to expand their current facility and keep their generating capacity centralized. And maybe they're kicking around the idea of diversifying into some sort of renewable energy. Well, the regional system plan would be a vital tool in figuring out what's going to make sense from a market perspective. What are the public policy challenges facing any of these plans? What are the market advantages or disadvantages either plan might face? And distribution companies like CMP... They'll do the same thing, except with an eye on transmission and distribution expansion. For example, CMP would be able to see the growing public policy demands for renewables, that there are maybe some preliminary facility plans to meet that demand, like an offshore wind farm in the works, for example, or say, I don't know, a massive hydroelectric facility that wants to connect to the New England grid, but can't because they're just out of reach. Well, a distribution company like CMP would be able to see that, and be able to come up with some transmission project proposals that would make sense financially and contribute to grid-wide stability. But, even with these regulated wholesale ISO markets, problems still present themselves that, despite a clear need, the financial cost is too great for their market to handle and no business wants to take it on. And when that need gets within about 3 years of actually negatively affecting the grid, well. Then it falls back to the ISO to try and figure out a solution, and this can include project reimbursement from the ISO directly. An example of this is the Maine Power Reliability Program. This was a massive upgrade and expansion project proposed by CMP around 2010. It basically consisted of a brand new 345 kilovolt path from Orrington in Penobscot County down to Lewiston and then down to Elliott in southern new York County where it hooked up with lines running across the river to New Hampshire. And it wasn't just the new 345 kilovolt path, they had to rebuild or upgrade 20 substations and maybe a dozen or so auto transformers along the route, as well as a new 115 kilovolt branch connecting at the Lewis Junction and running north to Livermore Falls and then over to Rumford. Now, what about the main power liability program was so crucial? The big reason was that the transmission lines connecting western and northern Maine with southern New England were not designed to carry the type of electricity generated from wind turbines. So while Maine has a lot more wind potential, we're starting to hit a bottleneck with how much we can export beyond its immediate region. The Maine Power Reliability Program helped fix some of that problem. So it was a big project and the time frame was spread out over a few years, very ambitious and very expensive. But, they presented their project to the ISO, showed them the need and the merits of their proposal, and then requested around $1.4 billion to help cover the cost. That's $1.4 billion with a B, as in boy, and the ISO agreed and paid CMP accordingly. And what I mean when I say ISO paid them $1.4 billion, Well, that money is really just coming from the customers within each state, and the percentage that each state is responsible for is based on each state's load demand. So, in the case of the Maine Power Reliability Program, 100% of that $1.4 cost was distributed among the six states based on each state's load. So, Maine customers paid for a portion, but Massachusetts and Connecticut combined will pay for more than half of that project. Now, this formula can be tweaked if a specific state's public policy decision is also contributing to the project's justification. So, maybe the Massachusetts state legislature decides it's really important to fund some underwater transmission lines for a new offshore wind farm. Well, technically such a project would contribute to grid stability, but a big push is the state's decision to prioritize that particular project. In those cases, Only 70% of the cost gets distributed based on each state's load, while the state's pushing the policy is responsible for the remaining 30%. So, an enormous amount would end up being paid by Massachusetts customers because their state has the heaviest load, and so are paying the bulk of that 70%. And because it's their state's policy, they're also responsible for the remaining 30% as well but main customers are still end up paying for some of that project. Additionally, if it's a transmission project across two different grids, like the one between Western Mass and New York, or the two between Vermont and Quebec, or one of the ones between Eastern Maine and New Brunswick for example, then it falls to the ISO of each grid to basically figure out how much each is responsible for and spreading it across each grid's customers accordingly. And some of that is probably dictated by their own federal regulations and interagency guidelines. Now, given the nature of our topic today, it's also worth noting that the agency that regulates a lot of this stuff from the federal level is called FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And any proposals to say increase the capacity of one of those interconnections with a grid outside their jurisdiction, like the ones between Quebec and Vermont, or Eastern Maine and New Brunswick, or if there's a proposal to make a new interconnection between say, Western Maine and Quebec, then not only is FERC involved, but the current status of those requests are not publicly available. And just so I'm clear, not every transmission project that's built is going to receive ISO reimbursement. It's only the ones that are deemed crucial to the region, if the benefit is more localized and not necessarily for grid stability, then it falls to the transmission company to figure out how to fund the project. So now let's try and piece together how a project like the NECEC gets likes. And to do that, we're going to take a closer look at what is happening in Massachusetts. So let's start with the fact that electric prices in Massachusetts are the fourth highest in the country and that only Alaska, Hawaii, and Connecticut pay more. And in the case of Massachusetts, There are a couple of reasons for why this is happening. That, when taken together, is creating both grid and price instability for the entire region. The first problem is that masses become dependent on natural gas. Two-thirds of what they generate is from natural gas fire generators. An energy source that, regardless of its environmental impacts, is non-existent in New England. and needs to be imported through pipelines, the bulk coming in from Pennsylvania or Canada and half of the natural gas New England imports through those pipelines is consumed in Massachusetts, and about a third of that is being used to generate electricity. But the pipeline's capacity is finite, and because most people in Massachusetts live in a community with natural gas service available, and more than half are using it to heat their homes, the price of natural gas fluctuates, especially during winter. These price spikes and constrictions on their natural gas supply cause a significant amount of instability within our entire grid. The second issue driving up prices is being caused by their Renewable Portfolio Standard, or RPS for short. And this Renewable Portfolio Standard is a set of laws that require electricity distribution companies operating within Massachusetts to have a certain percentage of the power they sell to customers come from renewable sources and that requirement percentage increases about 1% annually. The idea is to force these distribution companies to seek out and purchase from renewable energy sources when they normally would have gone with something cheaper like natural gas or coal. And so, how this works is that, let's say a renewable energy generator, like a wind farm, let's say they generate 1 megawatt hour of electricity. Well, that's worth 1 renewable energy credit. And every time they generate one megawatt hour for the grid, ISO New England issues them one renewable energy credit. And that gets deposited into a special account that ISO New England keeps track of. Now, that renewable energy generator, the wind farm, can then go sell that renewable energy credit to an energy distributor selling in the retail market. At which point, ISO New England transfers however many of those credits they purchase from the wind farm's ISO account over to the distributor's ISO account. And so what happens is like once a year, these distribution companies got to settle up. And if they don't have enough renewable energy credits in their ISO account, then they'll end up having to make an alternative compliance payment to the state of Massachusetts. And these non-compliance payments can add up fast if there aren't enough renewable energy credits to go around. Now, while Massachusetts was, I think, the first or one of the first states to implement a renewable portfolio standard, most states today, including all six New England states, have some variation of this policy in place. And each state sort of does it differently depending on their specific goals and the types of renewable energy they want to see developed. For example, the Massachusetts legislature, they wanted to promote solar power specifically, So they set it up so that a portion of their renewable portfolio must come from solar power. And Maine's legislature has made similar policies promoting wind power. Both Maine and Massachusetts created policies that protected their hydroelectric sector from cheap hydroelectric power from Canada. They did this by placing caps on how big a hydroelectric facility could be to qualify for their renewable portfolio. Maine's cap is at 100 megawatts which is way more than any of Maine's 60 hydroelectric facilities, and is also bigger than anything that could ever be built in Maine. And this 100 megawatt cap doesn't just protect Maine's hydroelectric facilities from large-scale Canadian hydro. It protects Maine's entire renewable energy sector from competing with large-scale hydroelectric facilities in Canada. And it's probably important to note here that For the past several years, Hydro-Quebec, along with a handful of state legislators, have attempted to change that rule so that Hydro-Quebec can qualify for our renewable portfolio, and each time it gets significant pushback from Maine's renewable energy sector. Massachusetts has a similar rule, but their cap is even smaller, nothing over 25 megawatts. But it's the same idea. The cap is bigger than any hydro facility in Massachusetts. And it's there to keep large scale Canadian hydro out of their renewable portfolio. In contrast, Vermont specifically does allow hydroelectric facilities 100 megawatts or bigger to qualify as renewable. And actually, Vermont at one point had a similar rule to Maine in this regard, but changed it as part of a long term purchase agreement with Hydro Quebec. And here's the thing about these renewable portfolios they undoubtedly will drive up electricity costs, at least initially. But if the point is to promote and support a homegrown renewable energy sector, well, through the late 90s, about 40% of Maine's electricity was generated using imported petroleum fuels like oil, and in the years since Maine adopted its Renewable Portfolio Standard Policy, that number has dropped to less than 2%, and four-fifths of what Maine generates is now coming from renewable energy sources. We have around 60 hydroelectric facilities across the state providing about a third of Maine's generated power. We lead the nation in biomass generation and we lead New England in wind farm generation. About two thirds of New England's wind farm capacity is in Maine. And about 25% of power generated in Maine is coming from those wind farms. A significant amount is exported to other states to help them meet their own renewable portfolio requirements. For example, I think it's about a third of the Massachusetts portfolio comes from Maine wind. So those policies are bearing fruit in Maine. Unfortunately for Massachusetts, the transition has not been nearly as smooth as Maine's. They first enacted their state's renewable portfolio almost 20 years ago now. And by 2020-2021, 15% of energy consumed in Massachusetts should be coming from some mix of renewable and alternative energy. Now. By 2020, around 17% of what they generate in Massachusetts comes from renewables. And this number goes up if you include homes and businesses with solar panels on their roofs. The -the behind-the-meter stuff. But they use so much electricity that only around 7% of what they actually consume ends up coming from renewables. And there's probably a handful of ways we could run those numbers, but the end result is the same. Massachusetts is not meeting their own renewable portfolio standard requirements, And distributors are using alternative compliance payments to make up the difference. So looking, for example, back in 2016, Massachusetts collected $38 million in alternative compliance payments. A state analysis looking at the issue concluded that these millions of dollars in alternative compliance payments were, quote, mostly due to a shortage of qualified generation certificates, end quote, and that increases in payments made by distributors was, quote, primarily been due to the annual increase in the minimum standard, end quote, the minimum standard being the absolute minimum number of credits they would need, end quote, and a slow movement of projects through the development pipeline. Because of the limited supply of available renewable energy credits, not only is it difficult to procure the amount of renewable energy Massachusetts requires, what is available is not cheap and it's pushing the average price paid per kilowatt hour up even further. And it should be noted that they have made attempts to encourage energy conservation, and it has made a difference. I think per capita, they actually have a really low usage. It's like bottom 10 for the nation. But there's just so many people. Around half of New England's residents live in Massachusetts. And just to give some perspective on what that looks like on the grid, in 2019, Massachusetts consumed more than 50 million megawatt hours, and they generated a total of 21.5 million megawatt hours, and so ended up having to import nearly 30 million megawatt hours to meet their demand. Now to give that some perspective, Maine consumed a little under 12 million megawatt hours in 2019, and generated about 10.5 million megawatt hours, more than half of which was from renewables. but Maine still ended up importing around 1.2 million megawatt hours, mostly, if not all of which, came from Canada. So, we're still importing some, but it's nowhere near the percentage Massachusetts imports. And unlike Massachusetts, Maine is either meeting or exceeding our renewable energy goals. Vermont is another state that depends on energy imports. They consume about 5.5 million megawatt hours, about less than half what Maine consumes, but they only generated like 2 million megawatt-hours from the cells. So even though Vermont is using way less than Maine, they need to import about twice as much as Maine does. The remaining three New England states, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, all generated enough electricity for themselves and for export. Combined, those three exported almost 20 million megawatt-hours. Now, keep in mind that on all of that is from renewables, most is coming from natural gas facilities. Connecticut has the biggest energy surplus in New England of around 12 million megawatt hours, which is more than enough to cover both Maine and Vermont's deficit, but it's definitely not enough to cover Massachusetts. In fact, even if you take all the electricity exported from those three New England states, it's still about 10 million short of what Massachusetts needs. Now, if we play the pretend game and take Massachusetts out of the equation, New England becomes an energy exporter overnight. Without Massachusetts, in 2019, the New England grid would have exported over 15 million megawatt hours into neighboring grids. Instead, our grid ran a deficit of 14.5 million megawatt hours, which had to be imported from neighboring grids, mostly Quebec's. The fact of the matter is that, not only does our grid lack the infrastructure to meet Mass's renewable energy requirements, our grid can't even meet their non-renewable energy requirements. Our shared grid is physically incapable of providing what Massachusetts requires and it's pulling up prices in the other five New England states. Add to this the constraints in price instability of natural gas and the fact that the Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Cape Cod, responsible for around 14% of the state's generating capacity, was decommissioned in 2019. And it's no wonder that not just Massachusetts But all of New England, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, are all in the top 10 for highest electricity rates in the country. Now, this all started in the early 2000s, and by the late 20-teens, people, particularly voters, started to take notice that their state's energy policy wasn't working. They had become dependent on a single imported fuel with inadequate supply lines and an unstable price and the limited supply of renewable energy was driving their price per kilowatt hour up even further, which might be tolerable if they were actually meeting the renewable portfolio requirements, but they're not. The situation was exacerbated even further in 2008, when their legislator had passed a strict set of greenhouse gas reduction requirements, and it was under this pressure that in August of 2016, they passed an act to promote energy diversity. The bill describes two types of energy generation contracts they want to see happen. The first, 83C, deals with offshore wind, something Massachusetts actually does have in abundance, but lacks the infrastructure to harvest. The hope here being that the promise of a long-term contract will attract the type of large-scale investment needed. But that's not what we're looking at today. Our concern is with the other type of contract they want to see happen, the one described under Section 83D, which states, In order to facilitate the financing of clean energy generation resources, every distribution company shall jointly and competitively solicit proposals for clean energy generation, and, provided that reasonable proposals have been received, shall enter into cost-effective long-term contracts for clean energy generation for an annual amount of electricity equal to approximately 9,450,000 megawatt hours. Long-term contracts executed pursuant to this section shall be subject to the approval of the Department of Public Utilities and shall be apportioned among the distribution companies under this section." And the legislation defined clean energy generation as energy that is already certified as renewable energy generation and or a hydraulic facility that's capable of stable winter pricing and of long periods of uninterrupted supply. But the specifics of how or what this would look like in practice, most of that was left to the Department of Environmental Protection's office to figure out. And that took them about a year to do. And what the Mass DEP came up with was the Clean Energy Standard. The Clean Energy Standard required that starting in 2018, 16% of what distributors sold to customers had to come from clean energy. And they set it to increase annually at about an average of 2% for the next 27 years. So they're aiming for 80% clean energy by 2050. <clears throat> Okay, so given the predicament they currently find themselves in, that may seem somewhere between ambitious and wishful. But remember, any generating facility that qualifies as a renewable energy facility automatically qualifies as a clean energy facility. So in that first year, when they needed 16% to meet their new clean energy standard, well, 13% of that was already accounted for through their renewable portfolio standard, and the alternative compliance payments. So they only really needed an additional 3% of clean energy in that first year to meet the new quota. Or they could just agree to make alternative compliance payments, because that's still an option under the clean energy standard as well. Alright, so remember that there are two different ways that a generating facility can qualify as clean energy in Massachusetts. The first option is that it qualifies for the state's renewable portfolio standard. Anything that meets those standards automatically qualifies as clean energy as well. But if it doesn't qualify as renewable, then there is a second option. And this section option is, and it's really a two-parter. The first part says that clean energy generation has to have 50% or less greenhouse gas emissions as compared to the greenhouse gas emissions put out by the most efficient natural gas generating technology available. So, it needs to be something capable of significant and immediate greenhouse gas reductions. That's part one. The second part specifically says that if it does not meet the same qualifications as a renewable energy source, then it does not qualify as clean energy except, and this except is important because without it, there's really no difference between renewable energy and clean energy except for hydroelectric. Remember, under the renewable rules, hydroelectric facilities larger than 25 megawatts, they don't qualify as renewable. But under their new clean energy rules, there's no cap. They can be as big as technology and government approvals will allow. So Massachusetts goes and creates a separate category from renewable energy that's exactly like renewable energy, except there's no 25 megawatt cap on hydroelectric. So they called it clean energy instead. And so now, Massachusetts' electric distributors are required, by law, to sell an ever-increasing amount of clean energy to its customers. And just to reiterate something I touched on earlier, that 25 megawatt cap that Mass has in its renewable portfolio, that cap is big enough to include every hydro facility in Mass, and their rivers aren't really capable of anything bigger. And federal and state regulations are so tight, expansion or new construction? just isn't feasible. It's a renewable portfolio standard rule designed to protect and promote what little hydroelectric they already have from being run out of business by large-scale hydro, imported from out-of-state facilities, capable of driving the price of not just hydro, but all renewable energy down so low it would put all of their in-state renewable energy generating facilities out of business and stop investment in local renewable energy projects. Like I mentioned before, Maine does the same thing for the same exact reasons, except our dams are bigger, so our cap is bigger. Nothing over 100 megawatts. And again, no facility in Maine is bigger than 100 megawatts. Additionally, Maine doesn't generate enough hydroelectric for export, nor do any of the other New England states for that matter. In fact, there's only one place that, not just Massachusetts, but any of the New England states could actually import hydroelectric from, and that's Canada, specifically Hydro-Quebec. And this isn't a hypothetical. It's already happening. It has been happening since 1986. The first transmission line, known as Phase 1, connected southern Quebec with the New England grid through northern Vermont, and it gave Hydro-Quebec a route to sell surplus energy into the New England grid. By 1991, Phase 2 was completed, and Phase 2 is huge. Phase 2 is a 450 kilovolt corridor running 932 miles. It connects the La Grande Complex, also known as the James Bay Project, all the way up near Hudson Bay to a substation just west of Boston, and it's capable of supplying 1200 megawatts to 1400 megawatts of consistent power to eastern mass. The James Bay hydroelectric complex it's connected to has a generating capacity of over 8,700 megawatts and provides power to customers throughout Quebec, New York, and the New England grid. And Massachusetts isn't the only New England state that has built interconnections. Vermont has been doing the same thing since the 80s and have ongoing agreements to continue purchasing hydroelectric into the 2030s. 25% of Vermont's electricity comes from those agreements. Additionally, Hydro-Quebec boasts an export capacity of 8200 megawatts, and about half of that is already being exported into New England's grid. So, because of Massachusetts, our region is already Hydro-Quebec's biggest customer. Okay now, back to the clean energy standard. Besides removing the hydro capacity cap, there are a few other rules laid out as well. First, If the generation facility is located in a grid adjacent to the ISO New England grid, like, say, within Quebec, and is hooked to New England through a, quote, dedicated transmission line, then that Quebec facility will be treated like one located within New England. Second, that a generating facility applying to be a clean generation unit has to dedicate all of its generating capacity to delivering clean energy into the New England grid. So, for example, if a generating facility's capacity was, say, around 1,550 megawatts, it couldn't just sell a portion of its capacity to Massachusetts as clean energy and then, say, sell the rest into a different grid, like New York, for example. They'd have to agree to sell all of its generating capacity within the ISO New England grid. And third, the generating facility has to be pretty new, like a completion date of after 2010. Right, so we already talked about how the removal of the hydrocap was basically a signal to Hydro-Quebec, because no other state or adjacent grid is capable of exporting large quantities of hydroelectric, not like Hydro-Quebec. The entire province is covered with hydroelectric generating facilities of all types, sizes, and ages, but only one was built after 2010, and it's called the Romaine Complex, a series of four different facilities strung along the Romaine River. They started construction sometime around 2011 and plan to have the entire complex up and running by sometime this year. And when it's completed, the Romaine complex will have a generating capacity of 1,550 megawatts, enough to power 450,000 homes. And Massachusetts wants all 450,000 of those homes to be located in Greater Boston. Alright, so three energy companies that operate in Mass get together and as a group, put out a bid request for a 15- to 20-year contract that will deliver 9.45 million megawatt hours of power per year. It is capable of long periods of continuous, uninterrupted power, while also only releasing half or less of the total greenhouse gases released by the most efficient natural gas generating facility commercially available. They put out this bid request at the end of March 2017, And they received about 46 different proposals from various energy generating facilities or a couple of energy companies applying together under a single bid. A lot of them are wind projects. There are a few solar projects in the mix as well as a few hydro projects and those contracts tended to include at least two different energy companies working together. They whittled this list down through the spring and summer narrowing it down to less than a handful of options. Three of them being the Northern Pass project through New Hampshire's White Mountains, the New England Clean Power Lake project through Vermont, and then our very own New England Clean Energy Connect project through the Western Maine Mountains. Now, what do all three of these projects have in common? They all fall into that category of two companies partnering together to apply for the contract. And the generating company in all three applications is Hydro-Quebec and all three projects plan to build a new transmission line through northern New England to connect Massachusetts with Hydro-Quebec. On January 25th of 2018, they announced the winner of the bid process was the Northern Pass project through the White Mountains. But once word got out in New Hampshire of a plan to cut a massive transmission line through the White Mountains, well, opposition grew quickly. So much so that about a week later, the state's regulatory agency rejected a permit for the project, effectively ending the Northern Pass as an option. Massachusetts quickly turned to their runner-up, the New England Clean Energy Connect project proposed by CMP in Hydro-Quebec. And that, everyone, is how a project like the New England Clean Energy Connect project gets legs. Now, before finishing up for today, I want to go over one other requirement that exists. The law required that, Before a proposal could be approved by the Department of Public Utilities, the state's Attorney General had to provide a written opinion on the proposal, and their opinion on the New England Clean Energy Connect project was not great. One of the problems I point out is that the legislation requires that the power generated be incremental hydroelectric generation. That 2% increase in amount purchased per year is supposed to come from an incremental increase in the amount actually being generated from the contracted facility. The legislation was designed to create a direct link between the clean energy standard and the funding to expand clean energy generation. And the Attorney General's office pointed out that was not what Hydro-Quebec was offering. Hydro-Quebec was offering a portfolio, a mix of its generating capacity from its run-of-the-river hydro facilities, most built prior to 2010. The whole concept of this contract, that Massachusetts would effectively be leasing a specific facility that could then begin regularly expanding its capacity alongside their state's annual increase in the amount of clean energy distributors were required to purchase, that doesn't exist within the NECEC contract. And not allowing it to deliver to other grids, really the concept of treating it as if it were actually located within New England, that's all gone too. The contract doesn't mention any of that, and there's no guarantee that the clean energy contract offered by Hydro-Quebec and Central Maine Power would represent an actual increase in new clean energy generation. Their Attorney General's office goes on to explain that, because there is no way to track if the clean energy generated is new clean energy, there's no way to guarantee that the hydropower sold to Massachusetts isn't just being diverted from other Hydro-Quebec customers. Customers like New York, for example. They might find themselves competing with Massachusetts for power they had been purchasing all along. And this could end up causing an increase in the use of greenhouse gas-emitting facilities just to make up the difference in lost clean energy, like those using natural gas, for example. The Attorney General's office points out that the purpose of the clean energy program was to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, not just Bass's greenhouse gas emissions. The Hydro-Quebec contract makes no mention of how this problem would be avoided. Another problem with the contract? There's no guarantee that the 9.45 million megawatt hours within the contract would be in addition to what is already being delivered through existing transmission lines. There was no baseline in the contract. Hydro-Quebec is allowed to count what is already being generated and exported to the New England grid to meet the contract's requirements. Their testimony goes on to say, quote, So ultimately, it's not entirely clear whether they are claiming that HQ will be able to deliver fully incremental hydro as solicited and is offered. In this respect, it would be helpful if Hydro-Quebec would make a clear statement about how much energy it can provide. Clearly, though, the proposed contracts do not require HQ to deliver fully incremental hydro with respect to historical average deliveries." The Attorney General's office goes on to explain that, because it's up to Hydro Quebec if they want to deliver power in addition to a historical baseline, or to simply meet the contract's 9.45 million megawatt hours of power with what they're already selling to New England, if they decide to go with power already being sold, then there's really no point in building the New England Clean Energy Connect. They could easily just use existing transmission lines. The Attorney General's office also argued that there was a conflict of interest in having the state's public utilities involving the distribution companies in deciding which contract proposals to choose. Apparently, some of these companies were already partnered with the generating companies that submitted applications. One of the reasons they said it was an issue was because rating scales had not been shared with the applicants but there was nothing in place to have kept those distribution companies from going and telling their partner how the scales are going to work. And I'm not going to go over the whole document here. It's like 40 pages, but I'll have a link to it up in the show notes at the website. All right. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap this up for today. We covered a lot. We talked about ISO New England, where and how our grid is powered, and how Mass's energy policy put it on a collision course with Northern New England. The next episode is going to look at the three Massachusetts energy distributors that are involved, and I'll take a look at CMP's history as well. And depending on how long that takes, I might go into the history of Hydro-Quebec and what their generating capacity actually looks like, but that piece is shaping up to be... that's probably going to end up as a part three. Alright, that's all I got for today. Thanks for hanging out.